John 3, 1 through 21. And I'm reading from the message. There was a man of the Pharisee sect, Nicodemus, a prominent leader among the Jews. Late one night he visited Jesus and said, Rabbi, we all know you're a teacher straight from God. No one could do all the God-pointing, God-revealing acts you do if God weren't in on it. Jesus said, you're, you're absolutely right. Take it from me, unless a person is born from above, it is not possible to see what I'm pointing to, to God's kingdom. How can anyone, said Nicodemus, be born who has already been born and grown up? You can't re-enter your mother's womb and be born again. What are you saying about this born from above talk? Jesus said, you're not listening. Let me say it again. Unless a person submits to this original creation, this wind hovering over the water creation, the invisible moving the visible, a baptism into a new life, it's not possible to enter God's kingdom. When you look at a baby, it's just that, a body that you can look at and touch. But the person who takes shape within it is formed by something you can't see or touch, the spirit and becomes a living spirit. So don't be so surprised when I tell you that you have to be born from above, out of this world, so to speak. You know well enough how the wind blows this way and that. You hear it rustling through the trees, but you have no idea where it comes from or where it's headed next. That's the way it is with everyone born from above by the wind of God, the Spirit of God. Nicodemus asked, What do you mean by this? How does this happen? Jesus said, You're a respected teacher of Israel, and you don't know these basics? Listen carefully. I'm speaking sober truth to you. I speak only of what I know by experience. I give witness only to what I have seen with my own eyes. There is nothing secondhand here, no hearsay. Yet, instead of facing the evidence and accepting it, you procrastinate with questions. If I tell you things that are plain as the hand before your face and you don't believe me, what use is there in telling you the things you can't see, the things of God? No one has ever gone up into the presence of God except the one who came down from that presence, the Son of Man. In the same way that Moses lifted the serpent in the desert so people could have something to see and then believe in, It is necessary for the Son of Man to be lifted up, and everyone who looks up to him, trusting and expectant, will gain a real life, an eternal life. This is how much God loved the world. He gave his Son, his one and only Son, and this is why, so that no one need be destroyed. By believing in him, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. God didn't go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger telling the world how bad it was. He came to help to put the world right again. Anyone who trusts in him is acquitted. Anyone who refuses to trust him has long since been under the death sentence without even knowing it. And why? Because of that person's failure to believe in the one-of-a-kind Son of God when introduced to him. This is the crisis we're in. God light streamed into the world, but men and women ran everywhere, ran for the darkness. 
They ran for the darkness because they were not really interested in pleasing God. Everyone who makes a practice of doing evil, addicted to denial and illusion, hates God-light and won't come near it, fearing a painful exposure. But anyone working and living in truth and reality welcomes God-light so that the work can be seen for the God-work it is. For those of you who are not members of Providence who haven't or who haven't been here from time to time, um, we do a conversational sermon, um, which is an opportunity uh, for me to talk a little, but you to talk some too. And um, it's evidence, I think, of how much our folks like these sermons because there's so many people here on a snowy Sunday morning, um, which is really good news. Um, so we're going to talk today about this passage that Jane read from the message. Um, it's one of the fam- most familiar texts in all of Scripture. Right up there with Psalm 23 and 1 Corinthians 13. The passage is familiar because it includes not only the story about Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night, but it includes John 3.16. Perhaps the most famous verse in all scripture. I think we could make a case for that, actually. This is one of the first verses we learn as children. Um, Or if we were not raised in church, it's at least a passage that we've seen plastered up on almost every sports venue in the country. Familiarity with a passage is often really soothing to us. I lift up my eyes unto the hills. From whence cometh my help. It's like putting on old soft sweatpants on a snowy weekend. Or eating your favorite comfort food. Those old passages really do do something for us sometimes. But many times our familiarity with the passage renders it a bit lifeless. Or boxes it into that same old, same old mode. And we sort of click it off. So that's why I decided to make today's sermon a conversational one. And also why I wanted you to hear it from Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. Um, Because sometimes hearing a well-loved and familiar passage in a different voice pulls us from our deja vu inattention into a more open space. And talking about it together, I think, can spark some new insights. So let's move on into this familiar narrative and see what we can see. Nicodemus is a leader among the Jewish sect known as Pharisees. Now, I don't want to insult your intelligence, but I am going to tell you a little bit about them. Uh, Pharisees are the experts on and interpreters of Jewish religious law. They act as gatekeepers in some ways, determining what and who gets classified as unclean, as sinful. If they say you are a sinner then you must do the cleansing rituals required to get back into the fold or you remain outside of the community. As Jesus' ministry grows more and more prominent, 
And he welcomes and forgives those whom the Pharisees have labeled unclean and sinful. They get more and more anxious about him, suspicious of him, and confrontational with him. This story of of Nicodemus, right at the beginning of the book of John, I think indicates that he's gotten their attention (laughs) and gives us some insight into how their concern about him might have expressed itself early on in his ministry. This is the only gospel in which Nicodemus is included, but he reappears in it three times. Here in chapter 3, And then again in chapter 7 where he intercedes on Jesus' behalf with other Pharisees. And again in chapter 19 after Jesus' death where along with Joseph of Arimathea he brings spices for Jesus' burial. He remains a somewhat shadowy figure throughout the gospel. This early incident gives us a first glimpse into this expert in Jewish law who comes to visit Jesus under cover of night. The encounter also sheds some light on who Jesus is and what following him is all about. We are not told why Jesus comes to see Jesus. We are left to wonder what prompted him to make this nighttime call and what he might have really wanted to discover. Several commentaries I read uh, in preparation for this sermon suggested that Nicodemus is really an archetype for us modern-day seekers. So let me pose this first question to you. I'm going to say it two ways. What do you think Nicodemus, what, what do you think draws Nicodemus out at night to pay Jesus a visit? And how is that similar to what draws us to Jesus today? Another way to ask that is, what do you think Nicodemus is really seeking? And how does that compare to what we are seeking today? So you can, say, you can talk about what draws him and how that compares to us, or what he's really seeking and how that compares. Whichever one of those sides of that question you want to think about. All the rest of the- oh. Speaking to the microphone, Jack. He's seeking truth, but he's not necessarily wanting everybody in the countryside to know about it. Okay. It seems that he is he has perceived something in what Jesus has said or what he's heard that is different from where he is and so he comes he, he comes at night out of fear that maybe that's true but he wants to know what it is okay so some mixed emotions I, I think to tag into what Artie said is that Nicodemus may have been kind of an academic and he was um, uh, looking for the authenticity in Jesus how that connected into what he knew in his study and his his experience with God and he he was searching for some authenticity in Jesus or maybe one to if he was the gatekeeper maybe to validate that mm-hmm. and yet he, 
took Jesus literally. He took Jesus literally. He said, how are you going to get born again of your mother? Mm-hmm. Physical, literal. Okay. That kind of takes me where I want to go next. But Lisa, go ahead. Um, you know, when Annette said that, it it made me realize that sometimes the literal questions are easier to answer. <laughs> so, so if we're only asking literal questions, you know, if if the literal questions bring us to Jesus, then then maybe Jesus can keep us with him by helping us understand the, the true and deeper meaning. Okay. You know, most therapists will tell you that the problem a client presents in the first session is hardly ever the real problem, right? Mm-hmm. Only the presenting problem. And I think the real issue a client needs to address is usually very, you know, very deeply hidden underneath the surface and must be sort of unearthed carefully and accurately. Nicodemus's presenting statements can be seen in this light, I think, um, as surface declarations masking his deeper need, as intellectual kinds of assent, or as a need for an academic affirmation of some kind, or an academic conversation of some kind. He proclaims that Jesus is a powerful teacher who does miraculous signs, God-pointing, God-revealing acts, the message calls him. So like a good therapist, what Jesus does is realize that Nicodemus must have some deeper needs and motives for this surreptitious visit. And he interprets that surface chatter and goes straight to the heart of his visitor's need. Nicodemus, Jesus says, no one can see, meaning no one can perceive, discover, discern, understand, or know. Those are sort of the synonyms for that Greek word that's used there for see. No one can see what God's kingdom is about except he or she be anothen. That's the Greek word, which can be translated three ways. Born anew, born from above, and born again. And that response throws Nicodemus sort of completely off this intellectual game. This is not the legal, philosophical conversation he intended to have with Jesus, right? He, he sort of scratches his head and responds, eh, So, what? Be born again? How can that be possible? How can somebody be born when he's old? Now, since this Greek word can be interpreted these three ways, born again, born anew, or reborn, and born from above, what's interesting here is that Nicodemus knows this and chooses that literal path. He chooses the literal physical understanding of the word born again and misses completely the deeper spiritual realities that Jesus recognizes he's really seeking. Jesus talks about born anew and born from above. And Nicodemus goes straight to born again. We fall into that same trap, don't we? Preaching professor Anna Carter Florence says of this text, the language of being born again has become shorthand for a certain religious fervor. As people everywhere, Christians and non-Christians alike, can tell you. She goes on to assert that this passage has been used in some pretty awful ways to sort us into groups, like Harry Potter's sorting hat. 
Are you born again? Is code language for are you saved like us? Or are you crazy like them? In its insider mode, it functions as a way to determine a person's salvation as a believer in Jesus Christ. In its outsider mode, it serves as a convenient way to label religious fanatics. Florence's observation reminds us that these stereotypes are more harmful than helpful, right? Because they separate us from each other and sidetrack us from the deeper realities to which Jesus points. So here's the next question. What is your experience with this term born again? And how would you describe the deeper realities to which Jesus is pointing that we miss when we focus on it literally or use it as a theological sorting hat? Let me me repeat that. What is your experience with this term born again? And how would you describe the deeper realities to which Jesus is pointing that we miss when we focus on it literally or use it as a theological sorting hat? Would you cut that question into two? Yeah, sure. Which which part you want? What is your experience with the term born again? Let's start there. Good idea. (laughs) I've seen it in pretty much all those things. Did I describe or did Florence describe? Yeah. How else? We're going to fix the feedback, hopefully. Born again. Josh. I think the first part of the question was personal experiences with born again. And I think there's a negative connotation that's historical that the term born again has been created to create systems of oppression where someone has it, someone doesn't. Then on a spiritual sense, there is a, uh, for me, being born again means I get to experience God's new life every day and this love every day. So I think you you have to be aware of not only what is spiritually there, but how that word has been perverted in um, church spaces historically. Okay. Anybody else? You know, I think when we put it in, how you worded the last part of your question, what are what are we missing? What is yeah? That? What is the point to which Jesus is pointing? Right. I think if when we use that born again term to put to put ourselves in categories, we miss the individual experience of of that relationship with Christ um, at, at whatever age it started. You know, if 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 baptism or or going through the born again experience just means that we're a voting member of a church, then what's the point? Um, My my youngest nephew is being baptized this morning, and Holly and I are missing that because of some events that are happening for her this weekend, and. he called 
to let us know that it was happening. And he was so excited. It was like something brand new and vibrant was, was going to happen in his life and continue forever. And, and I think we miss the, the vibrance of, of the life with Christ if, um, if we just use it for religious ca- categories. It's, it's such an individual relationship experience, I think. Okay. <laughs> Wait a second, Hunter. So we can all hear. <laughs> um, sort of related to that, um, what is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Do not be astonished that I've said to you, you must be born from above. The wind from above. The wind blows where it chooses and you hear the sound of it but you do not know where it come from it comes from or where it goes so it is with every everyone who is born of the spirit and it seems to me that there is freedom this is speaking of freedom and it's not just the freedom uh, from sort of knowing where this wind comes from uh, or how it's going to affect you. You don't know where you're going to go. You are completely free after the Spirit comes. And that's terrifying, <laughs> but it is not some rigid path right. either in the way you access this spirit to start with or where you go once you've lived that spirit I may have forgotten my thought (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I think that um, for me the language would be better if we used it have you encountered have you chosen to encounter Christ and do you choose that every single day? Mm-hmm. Because for me, it's not, it's not a one-time event. Phil always talks about you know, this idea of, well, did you get vaccinated um, <laughs> with, with this, you know, you're born again, so then you're set. Um, and and it's, you know, it's not a one-time event. It's an ongoing choice to encounter the Christ. Thank you, Glenda. You said it. there's a song by uh, Doyle Lawson which I think says it it's entitled this is the day of new beginning Mm -hmm. I think that's what Mm -hmm. born again means (laughs) you wear your Fitbit um, since Nicodemus was a, a good Pharisee, I, I assume he, was, he thought he could find salvation through following the law. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think what I'm reading into this is that Jesus is telling him it's really not anything you're going to do mm-hmm. as much as what God's going to do through the Spirit. And um, that probably threw him for a total loop. For a real I mean, loop. It kind of throws us all, I think. Right.
Okay, and in the darkness, he went to encounter Christ. You want to say a little bit more about what you mean by that? He chose. He chose in in the, under the cover of darkness. He cho- you know that's that's the way we move. Yeah. And it's interesting how Jesus brought the whole thing back around to discussion of darkness and light. Yeah, he does. Yeah, the commentaries all talk about this issues the issues related to darkness and light throughout the book of of the Gospel of John, but in particular in this. Go ahead, Brian. So my, my experience in my own life, I think it, I feel like it's different from a lot of people because I really don't understand Christ and that relationship in terms of what people think of as praise and worship and, be, and feeling happy. I think for me it's finding Jesus when I'm broken, when I'm in that darkness that has kind of been alluded to. Um, and, and I wonder about <clears throat> being born again and being saved and thinking like us to be able to walk through the doors of a church. Why is that a qualifier for being Christian? Anybody else? I think the concept of darkness and light and also the concept that Glenda described of choosing daily to me the words that keep coming to my mind is that it's all very layered it's a progression and a you know a living into multifaceted I was in a discussion this week on Friday with the Bible study group I teach in Greenville and and they were talking about the, the, way, um, the way many times we confuse our feelings with the reality of the presence of God. And, um, and that so many times it, it's a feeling thing rather than an intentional following. And I hear y'all making that distinction a little bit. Um, yeah. Yeah, but our feelings sometimes drive us in ways that are not necessarily healthy. Anybody else have anything they want to say about that? This incident with Nicodemus is easy for us to take on the surface at the literal level. It really is. Um, But when we dig more deeply, we encounter um, this man who really is seeking. He's not not quite willing to come out into the light. Um, Not sure what he's even asking or what he really needs or wants, I don't think. Um, He just comes to Jesus. And Jesus reads his soul as well as his mind and offers him a way out of his darkness. He offers him a relationship that gives a grace-laden path of new life. And this relationship can free him from his legalistic mind games Um, his useless need for proof because he asked for a sign. And all Nicodemus really needs to do is open the eyes of his heart and soul and believe what is right in plain sight. Um, This human being who lets the God light shine through him. 
drawing people like moths to flame. Jesus tells him, instead of facing the evidence and accepting it, you procrastinate with questions. If I tell you the things that are plain as the hand before your face and you don't believe me, what use is there in telling you things you can't see, the things of God? In the same way that Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert so people could have something to see and believe, it's necessary for the Son of Man to be lifted up. And everyone who looks up to him, trusting and expectant, I think that's an interesting word, that hopeful um, space, open space of expectancy, will gain a real life, eternal life. In our 2017 Enlightenment thinking, we look a lot like Nicodemus. We think literally, we require proof, we want certainty. We want to do things by the book and make sure our way is the right way. That's so far from what Jesus is saying that we need. The life to which Jesus draws us is not about getting it right or being certain or legalistically following a set of rules or signing off on a set of doctrinal statements. That way of responding to God requires very little faith. God wants our trust, not our assent to a rational set of legalistic rules and beliefs. God wants relationship with us, enough to come to this earth in human form with human face to make the invitation clear and accessible. This relationship is not built on laws and proofs, but on grace, trust, and mutuality. Henri Nouwen says, when heart speaks to heart, it is a gift of God. This is the way Anathan, born from above, is to be understood. Relationally, as heart speaks to heart, the God within you recognizing the God within others. The kingdom of God is built on this kind of knowing. Relationships involve risk, trust, courage, fidelity, forgiveness, perseverance, grace, humility, gentleness, kindness, self-sacrificing love. We get in trouble many times in relationships when we beat each other over the head with the facts, right? The only certainty to be found is in relationship with the one who quickens our souls. Offers a light for our darkness. Invites us to welcome that light into our very being and then to share it with everyone we encounter. So here's one final question. What does having a relationship with Jesus that leads to eternal life really mean to you right now? Or another way, how do you experience God light and what do you do with it? What does having a relationship with Jesus that leads to eternal life really mean to you right now? How do you experience God light? What do you do with it? What? Robert. I, I'm not sure that, that uh, eternal life is important to me. I'm not worried about what happens when I die. Is that a problem? 
<laughs> I don't know if this means anything to anybody, but to, to sort of find the stream and get in it and see where the Spirit takes you. And that takes uh, trust and, um, you know, that's, it's, that's also scary. I think as you go along in life, hopefully you get more and more courage to do that. There's kind of a conundrum here. <laughs> there is a problem. And it has to do with the exclusiveness um, of, uh, the, you know, the, the exclusiveness of the path or the, the, the question of belief in Jesus. And I don't know how to resolve this, but let me see if I can spell out the problem. Um, indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world. I'm not going to read the rest of that sentence. You can go back and look at that a little more. Um, that's the part of the conundrum that we often hear but let's see the introduction to Nicodemus coming in the dark when he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival many believed in his name because they saw the signs that he was doing but Jesus on his part would not entrust himself to them who believed in him, right? Would not entrust themselves to him because he knew all people and needed no one to testify about anyone for he himself knew what was in everyone. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus. Now what do we do with this? Here's a formula. Believe in it. Say you believe in it. And you are saved. But he, he knows what's in our hearts. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't necessarily entrust himself to us. The first image that came to my mind, and Annette addressed this a little bit, was the time I used a zip line. <laughs> and I, th I think that the challenge is, are we willing to put the harness on every day and trust the belay and go and step off the platform and, and 
and feel and enjoy enjoy the ride and the lack of control and let God be let God be the line. Right. I'm just wondering if instead of the word believe, maybe there, what he really meant to say was something more like beloved. And if it's, if it's beloved, then it, you can't just because you agree with the doctrine uh, be saved. It's more having, a, like you said, a relationship with him is really yeah. the thing that makes it all happen. Right. Not up here. Brian? One, if I'm to be born again and be thought of our Father who art in heaven. Father, the other side of that is there's relationship as son or daughter. So to say that God gave his only son, I I just have a hard time believing that's how it's really translated. Maybe that's just me. Um, And the idea with the word eternal, kind of what Robert's talking about is I can't think about beyond the existence that I know. First of all, eternal means beyond time. It's not about for me about birth, death, or something after this life. It's about the kingdom of God being here now. And how much can we live into that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anybody else? Susan. I think there's one other possibility. We always look at Nicodemus as being a seeker. Mm-hmm. Maybe he was there representing the power structure and the Pharisees and they were concerned about things that, uh, that, that, that Christ was saying that was challenging to the power structure and they sent him to check it out and that's why he went at night and that's why he kept ch- asking the challenging questions is because he was testing on behalf of the Pharisees. Is that he it is that his thinking changed and that he became a different person. Yeah, and it points. seems to me that has a lot of implications mm-hmm. for us today. We always give each other a hard time, right? <laughs> he didn't come asking questions. He came, he came with a simple des- declaration. Mm-hmm. He said... He came by night, didn't necessarily want everybody to hear what he, you know, was going to declare. But he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. And, you know, that's right after that passage I read before, which said there were a lot of people who sort of came to this new belief in signs and miracles. But obviously, de- Jesus is digging deeper, and and doesn't doesn't entrust himself to our understanding of uh, of what's you know what's real. Um, and he starts talking about the light, and he answers uh, Nicodemus by taking him to another level. 
And Nicodemus only asks a question when he's just kind of gobsmacked, as they say. But the latter part of what Suzanne said is the beauty of the story. Yeah, it's the beauty of the story. And um, these are, this is always such rich discussion. Um, but the word in this, in this passage, pistuo, that we translate belief, is not just the head knowledge that Nicodemus represents. Because I think that is where he starts. He starts up here. He starts with what he knows. He starts with what they've seen. He's making pronouncements, not asking questions. By the end, he's asking questions because Jesus raises questions in him. Um, but he, he really represents this intellectual need to understand or assent. He, he, rec- he represents this legalism that creates these onerous rules that keep some in and push others to the margins and define salvation legally. That path keeps us in the shadows. Swimming in the shallows of living faith. And I think pistuo is actually better translated by the word trust. And I can believe that this chair right here will hold me up. But when I actually sit in it, it's when I trust it. Pistuo means that you're willing to entrust yourself to the reality that you believe that you will give your life to it, that you will jump in the river, um, that you'll let it transform you, birth you anew from within. So Jesus is not offering Nicodemus protection from hell in the future, but meaningful, purposeful, grace-filled life from that time on, however long. He tells him, God didn't go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it was. He came to help, to put the world right again. Now this is the crisis that we're in. Calls it a crisis, which, you know, if you know anything about Chinese, doesn't it mean danger and opportunity? Isn't that the character? Um, God light streamed into the world, but men and women everywhere ran for the darkness. Like roaches. Because they were not really interested in pleasing God. Relating to God. Everyone who makes a practice of doing evil. Addicted to denial and delusion. Hates God light and won't come near it. But anyone living in truth and reality. Welcomes God light and sees it for the God work it is. Throughout the book of John. Nicodemus remains in the shadows never really stepping fully into the God-like to which Jesus invites him. That relationship with the one in whom God can be known. But still he sticks around. He moves. He changes. In order to step into that light, Nicodemus must give up his faith in legalistic understandings of who's in and who's out. Who's right and who's wrong? Who sins and who pronounces them simple? He must let go of his preconceived ideas of what God requires and enter a relationship with this one who offers God light in the form of forgiveness, grace, compassion, and service. He must get out of the driver's seat and into the passenger seat. So the question 
for you to think about, not to answer in this moment. Questions, actually. To what extent are you still living in the shadows? It's okay. But you might be afraid or unwilling to step fully into that light. Maybe just put a finger out there. And what we forget is that even on a day like this, the sun is shining. What relics of belief are you clinging to that prevent your acceptance of full relationship with Jesus? What judgments or questions have imprisoned you in ideology or skepticism? What's deadened your hope? What addictions or illusions are you clinging to that prevents you from truth, reality, from being born from within? The way Jesus offers Nicodemus is the relationship Jesus offers us. It leads to freedom, purpose, and meaning. Warming, quickening, transforming God-like. Nicodemus chooses to remain in the shadows of that. What will you do?